Jordan and Gretzky, Serena and Ruth Remembering great ones is easy to do But what about the no names who spent their whole lives Long stepping footballs and catching sack flies They're guys, remember that guy some guys now larry bird's not walking through that door fans kevin McHale's not walking through that door robert paris not walking through that door and if you expect them to walk through this door they're going to remember that guy the show where we mine our memories for nuggets of nostalgia about peripheral players past and present hey there folks it's me one of your hosts james we know who is not walking through the door but who is walking through the door is diaz back with you once again and we have a very special guest it's actually the man that constructed that famous locker room door for the boston celtics never to be walked through by larry bird or kevin McHale or robert parish again please introduce yourself well i'm not rick patino and i don't know who constructed the uh the boston garden but i am the very special guest xavier i was under the impression that it was the leprechaun the, did the leprechaun not create the garden? That w- that has been my understanding this entire time. The house that Lucky built. That's what they call him, right? His name's Lucky, I believe. I don't care enough about the Celtics to know that. Lucky the leprechaun with his fucking pipe in his mouth and his little winking face. I hate that little guy. Has anyone else been linked with so many jobs at Catholic schools while also getting fired for a prostitute sex scandal with, by Pitt with his players? Like... Yeah, a, a lot of bishops. A lot of bishops okay, have fallen into that exact basketball category, coaches. actually, Xavier. How, how many of those bishops have won multiple national championships? Probably more than zero. <laughs> Just law of large numbers, I think it's more than zero. There certainly exist universes in which that is true. But we don't want to talk about Lucky the Leprechaun skewing union labor to just magically create a stadium or any of Rick Pitino's scandals. We want to talk about positivity. And for that, I think I need to hear, fellas, what is making memories for you right now? Well, in a long view, positive. I guess it's a step along the road. It's about the journey, not the destination. But folks, the four teams that I care about most in my life are the Philadelphia Eagles, the Philadelphia 76ers, the Philadelphia Phillies, and Newcastle United. Philadelphia Union, I would put right there to round out my top five. And in the past four months, I have seen four of those five teams make it to and lose a title game. The Phillies, of course, lose the World Series to the cheating Houston Astros, who deserve no respect. That redemption arc that the media tried to pin was the most bullshit thing of all time. Can we just say that? I just think it's funny. I have always found the attitude of the Astros that have stuck around uh, and Carlos Correa while he was still there acting like they had gone through suspensions for like deep personal tragedies instead of just like cheating, which is fine. Honestly, if you're not cheating, you don't want it badly enough. But important to remember, too, though, James, no players were suspended. No, no players were suspended. Carlos Beltran's the only person that got punished, and he finally got a job with the Mets again this year. So really, no one got punished. Look, really interesting that they had no problems throwing the Puerto Ricans under the bus. I think there's no undertone (laughs) there. But anyway, we digress. 
the Phillies lose to the cheating Astros. Shortly before that, the Philadelphia Union have, for all intents and purposes, and as called by our very special guest, Xavier Perez, in our soccer chat, they won the game. They beat LAFC. And then Gareth Bale headed in a goal in, like, the 128th minute. Like, an absurd amount of extra minutes were played. And it was only because LAFC's goalie got sent off making a terrible challenge that broke his own leg. For good reason. There was an injury. So at that point, LAFC had one less person and a backup goalie. A backup goalie who we need to go into the layers of the schadenfreude of a Philadelphia sports fan experience. Was the backup goalie for the Union for years, came up through our academy, and very famously won many penalty shootouts in cup runs for us. So of course he comes in just in time for the penalty shootout. Had there been a penalty shootout, they might have made that sub anyway. And the local kid breaks Philadelphia hearts. Uh, So now we're at two lost championships. Then, earlier in February, the past month, a game called the Super Bowl was played. Um, Normally they play it on grass. Uh, This time they played it on an ice rink. Um, (laughs) And this, of course, neutralizes the Philadelphia pass rush that would have very severely punished a gimpy Patrick Mahomes. And the Chiefs win that game. And Newcastle United makes their first appearance in a cup final since the 2001-2002 FA Cup, I want to say. Might have been 98-99. It's been over two decades. Can say that confidently. Um, Newcastle, despite not being in Philadelphia, there is an incredible circumstance that aligns for our fourth string goalie who had not played a competitive match in over a year, nearly two years, makes his first appearance in the Carabao Cup final. Loris Karius, uh, who had started a final in the Champions League for Liverpool. But <laughs> he started one. <laughs> he was sitting on his ass with nothing to do when Newcastle about six months ago said, hey, we need like a fourth string goalie. Do you think you can do that for us? So we brought in Loris Karius to be fourth string. The game before the Carabao Cup final, Nick Pope, who's been the best goalie in the Premier League all year, inexplicably makes the dumbest decision I've ever seen any goalie make. And this is the guy that's been the best goalie all season. Comes like 30 yards out of his box, attempts a diving header, misses, and just instinctually grabs the ball, even though he's well out of his box. Uh, This is, of course, an immediate red card and a one-game suspension for the next game, which just so happened to be the most important Newcastle game in 20 years. Our backup goalie, Martin Dubrovka, he was the starting goalie before we got Nick Pope, was loaned out for the first half of the season to Manchester United, who were our opponents in that game. He played two games for Manchester United in that cup. That means that he cannot appear for another team in that specific competition. So we can't play him. We had loaned out our third string goalie, who's more of a prospect type, so that he could get more playing time somewhere else. He's being kept on the bench there even. So that brings us to fourth string, Loris Karius. Um, who did play a good game. It should be said, played as well as anybody could expect in the circumstances. But Newcastle loses 2-0. And that was a game that I watched on a basically 12-hour delay. I got home from a late day of work at about 11 p.m. And instead of just going to sleep and going to bed like a normal person, I watched the recording of that game. I made it to about the 70th minute before I was like, okay, so like we probably lose this, right? I can save myself 20 minutes. I have no shame in admitting that, but it is a great shame that 
Again, four months, four lost titles. And I am just waiting for that swift kick to my nuts that the Philadelphia 76ers are going to give me. Hopefully in June this year, I would love to lose an NBA Finals. That would be amazing. Just really, if they got past the second round, I guess it would be a success. But as the past four months have indicated, it's going to be painful. It's going to be in the championship series. Why not make it a perfect five? People might be wondering why, as a Philadelphia fan, I didn't mention the Flyers. It's because they're a fucking joke. And they are my most hated team in all of sports right now. Chuck Fletcher was kept on for one specific reason. Because, well... He's probably going to be gone after this year, but to navigate this trade deadline, we need stability. We need to make sure that we trade James Van Riemsdyk and get a return for the one player that, you know, we might actually be able to get value for on the trade market. And what does he do? He doesn't fucking trade him. JBR still on the Flyers. What a fucking mess that organization is. The journeys have been great with the exception of the Flyers, but the, uh, the end product and the pain that resides within me is, uh, is certainly making memories. You pretty much took everything I wanted to say, which is that I had been wondering for a long time what the first three, the Eagles, Phillies, and Union, meant for the Sixers, because it was clear that the Flyers were not going to be making the finals this year. Of course. And so there was no way that all of the Philly teams could lose in the finals. I was like, so maybe that saves Diaz from the potential heartbreak there. But remembering that you have five teams and that the Flyers are replaced by Newcastle, who have now completed their part of the prophecy, has, I think, locked Philadelphia into losing the finals. Uh, Hey, like you said, Embiid's going to make the finals. I would take that. If you offered that to me straight up right now, Sixers go to the NBA Finals, hard-fought series, losing six. If it was against anybody but the Nuggets, I would take that. I couldn't handle losing a final series to fucking Nikola Jokic. I, I think you not. need to stop talking. I think you need to stop saying things out loud. Yes. Let's mark that clip. Yeah, I, I, it, that would, that would be a quitting basketball. If Jokic gets the three-peat MVP, and then the only argument that I still had left is he can't get it done in the playoffs, and he beat and beat in the finals. I, th- that would be really tough for me. That would be really tough. I'm really scared for the next few months now. Listen. Even then, we would have made the finals. I haven't seen the Sixers in the finals since I was eight years old which is incredible. Yeah, it's, it's, it's weird, right? Because it's like, I look back on the Philly season very fondly now. I look back on the Eagles season very fondly. A great run for Newcastle, some local guys scoring along the way, and the Union were the best team in MLS all year. Great, great runs. But you just keep coming back to the fact that you could have been the happiest as possible. And instead, you were miserable for like three to four days after. It would be nice to get another championship but listen i'm very grateful for the two that i have i'm very grateful for the memories that have been made by all of my teams um except for the flyers and chuck fletcher go fuck yourself (laughs) and speaking of memories being made let's not look forward to the inevitable nba finals outcome let's focus on the present xavier what's making memories for you right now i got two things um just real quick i want to shout out jalen brunson who was eastern conference uh, player of the month for the past month, after averaging 27 and six, shooting 42% from three, and just overall being great as the Knicks have won seven in a row and look weirdly fantastic and apparently have the best offensive rating over the past three months of any team in the league, which is nuts. Xavier, I do have a question though. How dirty do you feel knowing that it is 
the Villanova backcourt that tortured Temple for years. That I feel no, I, I feel nothing at all. I feel I, I have forgiven Jalen for his indiscretions. I'm letting him have it. It's just it's, it's an important question. I was it's a an Knicks fan question. who suffered before I was a Temple fan who suffered. So I have forgiven Jalen Brunson for his indiscretions against Temple. You know, I, I forgave him a little earlier this year after he came to the Knicks, but now I definitely forgive him because he's fantastic. Uh, and Josh Knicks, Hart, let's not forget. And Josh yeah, Hart. The Knicks have not lost a game since Josh Hart has been on the team, 7-0. And, I mean, they're beating good teams, too. And they put up fucking 81 against the Nets in the first half of the other day, which is very, very fun to see the Nets implode while they do not have their own picks. So that's enjoyable. But the thing I really wanted to talk about was Arsenal played Everton on Wednesday in a big game. You know, ended up winning pretty handily 4 nothing. I got to watch it while I was at work because I have NBC, so I watched it on my computer. People in the UK could not legally watch this game in any way. I was like, that seems a little weird. So I looked into this, and I, I think I had known something about this before, but there's essentially two things that keep people in the UK from being able to watch Premier League games when everyone in other countries can watch them all. The UK doesn't sell the TV rights for all of their games during the season. They only sell the rights to half of the games. One, because they want to keep things exclusive, but two, because of an obscure rule from like UEFA statutes called Article 48 that allows member countries to select a two and a half hour weekend slot where live soccer can't be televised at all. So the UK, the English FA has picked Saturday between 2.45 and 5.15 p.m. No soccer is allowed to be televised anywhere in the country. The reason for doing this is essentially to, quote, protect stadium attendances. They schedule, like, half of the games during the weekend at this time. It's just, we want you to go out and either pay to go see them in person or go watch like your local lower league team play instead. We don't want you to be able to watch this otherwise. So if you're in the country, you can't actually watch it unless you go watch it in person. But everywhere else in the world, you can watch it very easily. And I think that's just absolutely nuts. There was talk currently about women's football possibly getting an exemption so people can watch women's soccer. I'm like, that would be great. Let people watch stuff. It's, it's, it's hard enough to get people to go to women's games because they're so drastically underfunded. It'd be nice if you put them on TV. But, I mean, could, could you imagine if the NFL was just like, hey, uh, we're 4 o'clock games, Eastern time, you can't watch them. You, you better get your ass down to M&T Bank Stadium, otherwise you cannot watch the Ravens. They're hamstringing themselves for no reason. They're not required to do this. They're allowed to do this, but they're not required to do it. I guess I understand the financial concept of wanting to get people to the stadium. But if you've already managed to split the rights up as much as you have, it does seem like you're leaving money on the table. Typically, when I see a decision being made by corporations, that seems like it's theoretically losing them money. I am surprised because as far as I know, they exist to eat that thing. Currently, the UK has their rights split up between four different providers. BBC Sport, BT Sport, Sky Sports, and Amazon Prime. And, and none of those are just standard cable packages other than BBC Sport. So people have to have three extra subscriptions 
to only be able to watch half of their games. Let's go back to cable. Cable was fine. I liked cable. It is incredible how we're coming back full circle to just give me all the things that I want at one price. Full circle. What about you, James? What's making memories for you? Well, Diaz, your Eagles are doing one thing for me that I love very much. They have submitted a proposal for uh, players to wear the number zero in the NFL again, which I'm very thrilled about. People were able to wear both zero and double zero until uniforms were standardized in 1973. In fact, there is exactly one Hall of Famer with the number double zero. It is Jim Otto, center for the Raiders. I just love it when people get to wear zero and double zero. It's a great thing. The first Sixers game that I ever attended, 2014, against the Charlotte Bobcats, uh, there was a double zero and a zero. Diaz, I did want to give you a, a quick quiz question. Do you think you can name the Sixers players that on January 15th, 2014, wore double zero and zero? Yes. Very easily. Let's see here. Spencer Hawes, Tony Roden. I have, uh, I had Tony Roden wearing three in that game and Brandon Davies wearing zero. Brandon Davies did win zero. Tony Roden never wore number three. Okay. Uh, he was actually number nine. Okay. No, I, 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 my immediate thought was also Tony Roden. I had to look it up for a while because Brandon Davies wasn't even listed as wearing zero initially in the B ref. You've got Spencer Hawes as the double zero. All that to say, yes, please let everyone wear zero in, in the NFL. It's great. Uh, speaking of the NFL, you know, there's, there's a lot going on with the Ravens and I feel like I have to, oh, did you guys just hear that? That thunderclap means I unfortunately will not have time to talk about the Ravens because it's time for a spring training lightning round. I do have <laughs> things that I want to say from the first couple weeks of spring training. First off the pitch clock. It's awesome. No equivocation whatsoever. Pro pitch clock fucking rules. So that's bullet point. Number one bullet point. The second. Masataki Yoshida, Japanese slogger. I just find it hysterical that the first time he ever got to play with the Red Sox in a game was against Northeastern University, and they scored five runs in the first inning, so he probably thinks this American baseball shit is going to be sick. <laughs> Number three, I want to go back to your teams once again, Diaz. I am very much a fan of what Trey Turner is doing now on the base pads this year. He is going double oven mitt when he gets on the base pass because of all of the injuries he has sustained to his hands and wrists. And so every time Trey Turner takes a base this year, he will be double mitting it up. It's just smart. Sometimes you have to go for the front of the bag. Sometimes you have to go for the back of the bag. Why are we limiting ourselves to just one oven mitt? I think double mitt is going to be the next big thing. I think Trey Turner is making the fashion statement of the season. When will they figure out something to put on your shoes? Like just put put like a longer an extender on your shoes so you can get a better lead. High heels like Ricky Henderson had when he was uh, in that Mexican bar shootout. Perfect. Yeah. Got a couple more bullet points real quick. The Orioles playing a half inning against the Pirates. Yes. With no umpires because <laughs> the fantastic. game had ended and Brandon Hyde just asked permission for O'Frady Gomez, I believe, was the Orioles pitcher. He's like, hey, come on. We had him scheduled today. Can we get one more inning? And Pirates like, yeah, hell yeah. Let's get some more at-bats for some of our young guys. And no umpires, but still a broadcast going on. Just a beautiful half inning. You, if you put that on a loop for the next eight months, I like wouldn't care if there weren't real games. I just want a, an eternal inning of baseball. Finally, I am no longer afraid of the Texas Rangers. I have no fear whatsoever for the Texas Rangers because the Texas Rangers players were asked on social media in a little video who their mains are in Mario Kart. And nine out of the roughly like 23 or so that were asked listed Bowser, which means the Texas Rangers 
are just completely unaware of any of the current meta in cart. And if they can't be trusted to keep up with that kind of like basic competitive knowledge, clearly you should be doing Waluigi on some kind of ATV. Getting Bowser or really any heavy character. Like, get the fuck out. You don't know what you're doing. The Texas Rangers do not strike any fear into my heart whatsoever. And uh, that has been your spring training lightning round. Max Scherzer also tried to see how fast he could pitch today and got called for a balk because he did it before the umpires were ready. I like the pitchers fucking around, seeing what they can do with this pitch clock. Well, and then he's doing the thing where he'll get you like fucking rapidly running and a couple times then has sat for as many of the 20 seconds as he possibly can just to keep you waiting in that tense, uh, in that tension. Oh, he's wait. fucking <laughs> mad. There was something else. Someone took a video of Wandy Peralta striking out uh, Tucapito Marcano in 20 seconds and put it next to Pedro Baez, I think it was last year, and they just put it on loop. And Peralta struck out Mercano five times in between Baez throwing a single pitch. Pitch clock is great. Pitch clock is an objectively just good thing. It's literally a minute and a half, and Baez throws one pitch because he just keeps stepping off and looking at the runner and looking back. It's just phenomenal. The other one I loved was, I think it was the time between Granky pitches is enough time to run an entire Kentucky Derby and somebody like overlaid the videos. It was incredible. Anyway, those are the things that are making memories for me. Sorry we didn't have time to talk about the Ravens. Maybe we'll get to that next week. But this week, we do have something else we want to share with you all. You know, we here at the Hall, much like any museum, we're trying to tell a story. Museums have a narrative that they're trying to present. And for us, it's, it's we're always trying to get at the heart of what guys mean to sports. And with that, something that we've realized is every once in a while, we're going to come across a story and it's going to be a story that is very much in that spirit, but maybe there isn't one singular guy that you can really focus in on, but they still need to be told. And for that reason, uh, partially inspired by, Hey, a plug. If you're in the Baltimore area, the Baltimore museum of industry has a lovely new exhibit on food insecurity. That's opened up an excellent and fun, happy topic that we all want to learn about. But because of this special exhibit space, we have commissioned the curatorial team here at the hall of guy institution to make our own temporary exhibit space. And we are uh, very proud to announce we filled it with a couple new exhibits on some particular teams that we want to discuss today. Yeah, this is a, a, an incredible addition to the hall because as I, th I think it was Mr. Medicinal that really first brought it to light for us. Sometimes you cannot consider the individual guy, but it is the collective that they form that is what makes them guy. As, as the, uh, the guy is greater than the sum of its parts, I guess is the best way to say that. So really, I think this is a great addition. I think this is something that the people maybe, I don't think they realized they wanted it until we've produced it. And I think we have some incredible teams to, to, to showcase to the guy community. I couldn't agree more. And I think you folks are absolutely going to uh, demand the opportunity to learn more about what we have to present to you. I want to go ahead and take you down the first hallway here, if you guys don't mind. This is uh, something I worked very closely with the curatorial staff on for my exhibit. And uh, I'm really excited to share some of it. But as as we enter, we're going to try and uh, set a little bit of an atmosphere for you'll actually notice uh, that right here, we've got a tumbleweed running on a timer that comes across every once in a while to really set the tone that we are going back to the last bastion of the Wild West. We're going to go 
to Wyoming for this story. As we step a little further in here, you know, we want to inform people a little bit about what it was like when Wyoming became a state all the way back in 1890. Uh, shit was still wild back then in Wyoming, very, very literally. So just before this, quick history lesson, something called the Homestead Act had been passed. And so a bunch of small ranchers were coming into the state, being able to state claims, and the big ranchers that were already there did not like this. So they hired mercenaries to go deal with this problem. The state troopers, as much as there were some, sided with the small ranchers, and then this broke out into a four-year armed conflict that didn't get broken <laughs> up until the U.S. Army came to break it up in 1893, because it had taken that long, basically, for them to learn about it, make a decision, do anything. And during that time, in 1890, Wyoming became a state. So that's kind of how things are, as you start out here. It's a bit of a lawless place, and so they try to introduce some law and order. Unfortunately, one of the ways they decide that they have to do that is to form a state penitentiary because they're in that prison mindset. When they form this penitentiary, it's even worse because in 1901, Otto Graham is this businessman that's going to open it up. And he's a millionaire that decides he's going to open a state penitentiary specifically to make money. This is a money-making venture for him. Now, this is something we are very proud of here at the collection. If you will come take a look over here at this plexiglass case, Inside of it, we actually have one of the products that was made at the factory that was run on prison labor for a number of years here. Uh, it is a broom. This was a prison labor broom factory set up by Otto Graham that made him, over the course of the next few years, $250,000, equivalent to about $6 million now. So he's getting very, very rich off this prison labor broom system until, eventually, the state does in 1911 say, hey, uh, actually, I, I don't think you can directly profit off of prisoners in this way. We're, <laughs> we're Wyoming and everything. But this seems a step too far. In 1911, that is when they kick him out. They bring in this former Bighorn County Sheriff, Felix Alston. Uh, here you'll see on the wall, we actually have his badge when he was Bighorn County Sheriff. But once he turns that in to become warden of the prison, things get better very quickly. The guys are given outside recreation time. Uh, for some of them, it's the first time in 10 years that they have been outside since they were at that penitentiary. And as they get out there, they're guys in the 1900s. They're having fun outside. Naturally, they're going to start playing baseball. Now, some of these guys are pretty good at baseball, Felix Alston noticed. And so Felix Alston gets with his friend, Governor Joseph Carey of Wyoming. He is a friend and a known gambler and he is convinced to fund this team so that he can run books on the bets for them. And with this, we basically get a reverse version of the longest yard where say, the warden the and the, yard. except they want the convicts to win. And so they form the Wyoming State Penitentiary All-Stars, the team that we are here to discuss today, an undefeated prison baseball team. I will go ahead and give away that spoiler. This is not a team that will ever lose a game. They play their first ever game against a local like company scrub team, the Wyoming Supply Company Juniors. They crush them 11 to 1. Now this story starts to catch on. This is in July 18th at this point of 1911. And real quick, we do need to break down that this is of course a team of criminals and there are some unsavory elements amongst them. We have three rapists, a forger, five thieves, and three killers, including at least one guy on death row. And wouldn't you know it, the guy on death row 
happens to be the best player on the team, Joseph Singh. I'd be worried to be the forger. I'd be like, damn, my crime sucks compared to everybody else here. <laughs> the, the 27 Yankees thought they had Murderer's Row. This is literally Murderer's Row. It is indeed the first ever Murderer's Row. Uh, let me just go ahead and scratch that out where I have the dramatic reveal of that line later in my notes. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> no it, uh, Joseph Singh is the star on this team. He goes four for four in that first game. Uh, we have a couple clippings here, actually, that we got for this. The Washington Post got wind of this. Here is the headline. Slayer scores home runs. The local paper, the Carbon County Journal, went in a little bit more into depth. Joseph Seng, who was convicted of murder in the first degree and sentenced to death, played a classy game all the way through. And the thing is, people are fans of Joseph Seng. The reason being, he murdered his lover's husband. He had been uh, caught in flagrante and it was ah. a, a crime of passion as many fans saw it. And so Joseph Seng is very early the star on this team. The second best player and another very important person is the captain of the team, George Sabin, who also was a kind of sympathetic figure to all these people, despite being a murderer. He had been a rancher there had been a number of sheep rustlers nearby, and he snuck up on them one night and shot all three of them in the head, killing them immediately. <sighs> However, because you'll remember there was recently a four-year-long armed conflict between, like, federal troops and local ranchers, there are a lot of people that are sympathetic to George Sabin's killings here. He also plays a very specific role. He might have been a close friend with the sheriff. We think that because he got to have day release while he was in prison. What he would do is go with a chaperone to the bar and you know, drink and talk up the team to local degenerates at the bar, who would then be local degenerate gamblers later on. Because, again, <laughs> the governor is running the only books in the area that will take any action on this team of convicts. And so he gets a 20% cut of all money that is placed on any game regarding the Wyoming State Penitentiary All-Stars. And those games continue to go pretty well. They play those juniors once again on August 4th, and they win by the exact same score, 11-1 to 1 once again, crushing them and making a lot of money for the people that are running this. But it's now August 4th. We're getting closer and closer to August 22nd, which is when Joseph Seng is scheduled to be hung. As they approach their next game on August 13th, Joseph Seng had put in for a stay of execution, and he hadn't heard anything about it yet. But there was certainly rumors that you might get some special treatment for it. They play this game on August 13th, 1911. They again win 11-4, to probably against the juniors as far as I could tell. I, frankly, it doesn't seem like there are a lot of baseball teams here in rural Wyoming. Saban, though, in the lead-up to this game, fucking loses it at one point during practice at the shortstop. They, like, bobbles the ball, and Saban just lays into him, screaming him that Alston told him, if you all have any airs, if you all are losing, we're going to add to your sentences. And he starts telling all of the gamblers this, too, when he goes into the bars. So the gamblers all think when they play that August 13th game that these guys are playing for their lives. Joseph saying, in particular, some inmates do not enjoy the idea that Joseph saying is going to get off of death row because he's playing baseball. We have records here. We've actually tried to recreate the scene a little bit. If you'll step in, we're near a recreation of the cafeteria from the Wyoming State Penitentiary where records indicate one inmate 
picked up the heavy metal ball that he was shackled to, much like a cartoon. You know who in like fucking Looney Tunes cartoons, all the prisoners have those giant metal balls that are attached to their ankles? This guy had one, and he picked it up, climbed up the stairs, and he wanted to drop something heavy on Joseph Singh. He didn't drop this ball, but what he did drop, now we weren't able to get the original, but we have painstakingly recreated with sand from Wyoming a 25-pound box of sand which is apparently what this guy tried to drop from a high height onto Joseph Singh's head to kill him. It does narrowly miss. Joseph Singh is still alive, but he's shooken. These convicts are terrified now of what could happen if this baseball thing runs out. They're 3-0. and What happens when that right column gets its first integer in it? We get to August 29th. You will notice that is after August 22nd. Joseph Singh is not yet dead. For whatever reason, he has not been executed yet. Truly, everyone's like, oh, so if we lose, he's dead. That's not good. Uh, and to be sure, they do not lose. They win 15 to 10. It is their fourth game. They're 4 0, and that will actually be their final record ever as a team because we have a dramatic reappearance from Otto Graham lurking in the shadows this whole time. And he's been spreading this crazy rumor that, like, Governor Carey is profiting off a lot of gambling on this baseball team of convicts. Obviously, insane rumor, but in order to squash it, we do immediately need to stop having this baseball team play. Like, they cannot play any more games, actually. We need to cut that out right now, right away. So, Otto Graham ends up putting a kibosh on the whole thing. To Felix Alston's credit, when this goes down, his next thing is like, all right, well, I'll just start a new education program for this penitentiary. And at one point, like the heat kind of dies down and they think about restarting the baseball team. But by that point, they were getting such good press for how well-renowned their education program that all of these inmates at the Wyoming State Penitentiary were in. that They're like, well, we can't possibly stop that. And so that ends the, the brief comet-like trajectory of the Wyoming State Penitentiary All-Stars. The next year, Joseph Singh learns that it was actually his lawyers who had gotten a temporary stay of execution during that time. It was not because of the baseball team, but it was sadly a temporary stay of execution. We do actually have here one final newspaper clipping I want to draw your attention to. Uh, it's from right after May 24th of 1912, now from the Carbon County Journal again, and it describes the final moments in the life of Joseph Sang. His steps were steady, and he went to his death in a manner which stamped him as a brave man and he was hung immediately afterwards. That is the story of the Wyoming State Penitentiary All-Stars. It, it raises a lot of questions that are still pertinent today. You know, on one hand, there is the financial exploitation of prison labor in this case, but there's financial exploitation of all of the athletes that are out there today. At the same time, you also wonder, what kind of things will a crowd look past if guy hit ball hard? There's a lot of murders that were forgiven on that, because Joseph Seng and George Sabin Hit ball pretty hard. Look, chicks love the long ball. The penal system loves the long ball. Everybody loves the long ball. Um, and I think Joseph Sain was just proof positive of that. The fact that there's there's this shady Otto Graham, and then there's also Otto Graham, who was a great early American football mm -hmm. quarterback. They um, are spelled differently, by the way. This is G-R-A-M-M. Oh, uh, of course. Oh, I hate that. Double M's. It Double M's. That's yeah, bad. that's that's the that's, only reason you need to hate Otto Graham. That's 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 the evil Otto Graham for sure. Yeah, no, a, a beautiful exhibit, and yes, guy hit ball hard, guy hit ball far, but 
the, the the moral implications as you laid out james that this that this raises um the ethical concerns great guys are great to watch but great guys also make us think and i think this exhibit is a thinker it is and uh some people that we want to thank not quite think, but thank are uh, two of the people that wrote an excellent book that was used as a source for this largely. And it's Chris Entz and famed Hollywood producer Howard Kazanjan, who is responsible for two each of these Star Wars and Indiana Jones movies as like an incredibly successful Hollywood producer. And uh, now just like sometimes writes history books with his buddy Chris Entz. This one was Death Row All-Stars, a story of baseball, corruption, and murder. So our curatorial staff is thoroughly indebted to their uh, support and funding. Thank you again for that big old novelty check. But of course, the staff has been hard at work. We have been working them to the bone, much like the Wyoming State Penitentiary All-Stars, because we've got two other exhibits that we're incredibly excited to share with you. Yeah, if you'll, if you'll follow me over here to my left, we have an exhibit which is centered around the greatest dynasty in American sports history. You may be wondering, are we describing perhaps the late 90s through the 2010s UConn women's basketball team are we talking about the UCLA men's basketball teams from the 60s and 70s perhaps the patriots of the 2000s into 2010s lots of great dynasties in american sports history but there's one that reigns supreme above all of them we're talking about a team that since 2007 has claimed every single national championship which has been competed at the college level. Not only that, this is a team that for seven of those eight years, they competed in the championship against themselves. You may be thinking, how is this even possible? Impossible. Impossible. It can't be done, Diaz. Well, when your JV is just as loaded as your varsity, imagine if, if Alabama football was allowed to have their backups be a specific team that also plays a 12-game schedule, and then Alabama varsity and Alabama JV met in the college football Don't give team. them this idea. They'll do it. Diaz is speaking so many horrible things into existence tonight. <laughs> they will do this. Well, listen, just imagine how horrible that would be if it happened once, and imagine it happened seven out of eight years. Not only that, this is a team that is competing at the, the highest uh, level of competition. It, it's not appropriate to say professional for this sport, but they compete at the highest level. They won a national championship in 2006, have claimed five other cup titles, I'm talking about the greatest dynasty you've never heard of until now, the West Point, a.k.a. Army, team handball team. That just feels appropriate for handball. I don't know why. Handball has big, like, 90s techno vibes to me. Well, I just, I, I love handball because we were able to play intramural handball in college. And, like, I remember even in, like, high school gym class, like, handball was just, like, the coolest fucking sport that you could ever possibly want to play. For, for the uninitiated, handball can best be described as a combination of soccer and lacrosse where you, as you might infer, use your hands. Um, there's also basketball elements to it, um, particularly in the ways that you'll navigate around the court. So you get three uninterrupted steps, and then you get three dribbles, and then you get three more steps before you need to do something with the ball. There's an arc, which essentially forms the crease. It's a, about a five or six meter crease. 
and you must shoot from outside of that. However, you're able to launch from outside of the arc into the arc and take a leaping shot and then throw it while you're in the air, which leads to just some very high-level exciting play. And nobody, of course, has mastered this better than the West Point team handball team. Which is hilarious because the USA sucks at handball. Oh, yeah, of course. And I, I think that is a specific fact that enables this circumstance where one college team not only dominates the college ranks, but frequently competes at the, again, professional is not the, the appropriate word, but the highest level of competition. Well, um, then that's why we can't win internationally, because all our best handball players have to go serve in the fucking army. Really, if we, if we can, if we're able to figure it out for Noah Song to most likely not make the Phillies team, but it'll be cool. Why can't we figure it out to like compete on an international level at a sport that is much more popular and like very well attended professionally in Europe, especially Eastern Europe. They fucking love handball over there. But yeah, West Point has has really nailed it. They've they've claimed, I counted this up, 37 college national championships. The first one being back in 1976. You see, we have here a lovely picture of that 1976 team. Then we had a magical run from 79 to 82, where if you were a freshman on the West Point Team Handball Club, and they do, they, they, that is how they officially abbreviate it. It's, it's always West Point Team Handball Club, THC. So West Point THC, Florida THC. That's how <laughs> is that all the of only these- THC that's allowed on campus? I believe so. It is, it is the only thing that they will allow. But that did tickle me uh, when I saw all of them, like Florida THC. But if you were a freshman on the 1979 West Point Team Handball Club, you won the national championship every year because from 79 through 82, they win the championship. If you're a freshman in 84, you're going to have to go through some heartbreak in your first year. But then 85 to 87, you're going to win the national championship. The 1989 and 1990 freshmen are going to be able to say they won a championship every year because from 89 to 93. They're going to claim those titles. Then 95 to 2001, 2003, a stunning three-year gap from 2004 to 2006 where they do lose the national championship each year to UNC. But in 2007, you're finally going to get your revenge. You're going to get your revenge three years in a row against UNC. And then in 2010, some incredible memorabilia from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, where the 2010 national championship was competed you're going to see some beautiful merchandise from the start of the most incredible run of dominance by one team because this is when west point black starts having an epic run of games with west point gold in the national championship 2010 west point black is going to win 30 to 25 over them in 2011 they're actually going to go over to the Air Force Academy is where this was competed. 40 to 28, a bit more of a domination. But it's really the 2012 game in Richmond, Virginia, that we want to focus on here. This was the best chance that West Point Gold ever had to claim a title. They put that game to overtime. West Point Black would prevail 29-27, but really a moment that the impossible very nearly happened. A JV beating a varsity in a national championship was almost a reality that we got to see. But unfortunately, for the content, really, I'm most sad for the content because the content would have been amazing had that happened. 
I can't imagine the banter back on campus as the JV. I wonder how they split it up. <laughs> because if there's someone on the JV and they're like, I think we could really do it this year, do they just be like, I don't want to join the varsity team because I think we could beat the varsity team as the JV? And then what's there's the quality no breakdown? Way- there is absolutely no way you do not go to varsity if you were ordered at a fucking military academy. There, there is no way that that is a lot. You are off the team if you do but not. There's like, got to be some. There's, there's got to be someone though who's good enough to be on the varsity or better than someone on the varsity. But because of just how the like you know seniority breakdown, the coach is like, okay, you're going to be on JV for this year, even if you're better because this is your senior type thing. The talent breakdown is definitely not going to be like fully the best or only on this one and the worst or on this one. Any well, given whatever day it is that handball typically takes place. Any given handball day. Um, that's actually exactly what they call it. They wake up and they say, wake up, babe, it's handball day. That's, that's, <laughs> that's cool. Good morning. Handball day morning. Handball day morning to you. Go birds and happy handball to you and your family. Um, but no, I this this run is is going to continue next year. The varsity really wants to lay down the law. They want to make sure that JV doesn't get cocky. They went thirty four nineteen that year. In twenty fourteen, JV's not going to make it. Our good old friends, the Tar Heels, are going to come in to get a twenty three fourteen whooping in the championship. But then the next two years, so now around twenty fifteen and twenty sixteen, JV's going to make a step up again. Varsity is going to win 35 to 32 in 2015. And in 2016, again, a more convincing victory, 29 to 17. But to recap, from 2010 through 2016, so a seven year span, six of the seven titles were competed between West Point Varsity and West Point JV. I think what particularly speaks to me about this is the, the travel basketball team that I played for growing up. Uh, we had a similar setup. I did play on the JV team and very often we would compete in the same tournaments as the varsity. And there was three times that we got to play the varsity team in a tournament and we went two and one in those three games. How obnoxious were you after that one? I want to know, did you keep it in? Were you like a respectful kid or did you just fucking let it out? Well, important to remember about myself as a child is I had rec specs up until I was about like 13. So the Rex Specs look didn't lend itself much to uh, bravado and uh, swagger and shit talking, but I, I did let out many a guttural yell uh, during those games as, as, as much as a 10 year old can yell. Just you always have that feeling of like, I'm just as fucking good as those guys. Like what the fuck? Um, and you get the chance and I just really feel bad for the the West Point JV that they had that opportunity six times and even got to overtime the one time. That's one where I, I to our best efforts, uh, our, our staff has not been able to recover any film from that game. If we ever do find it, of course, our, our loyal fans will be the first to discover it. But that is a game that there should be documentaries made about this game. We're in fact working on that. We hope to have something for you soon. Stay tuned. (laughs) 
and, and the good news is, in the meantime, in lieu of footage, uh, our incredibly intrepid curators have created this uh, terrifying virtual reality machine that will simulate the physical sensation of getting an opportunity in overtime to defeat the varsity team and still losing. So if you want to experience that, you can just step right in there after signing a waiver. You'll be able to pinpoint the exact moment your heart breaks. It's an incredible, incredible machine that we've been able to rig up. And once again, props to our staff. But yes, yeah, since then, in that whole run, Varsity has still not lost a national championship. Um, they came very, very close last year. Ohio State made their first appearance in the national championship game and went down 31-30 to West Point winning. Um, 2020 and 2021, both years, those were canceled uh, due to the global pandemic, but an incredible run. And again, we also do want to specifically highlight the exhibits that we have for the 2006 U.S. National Championship, not just collegiate, the incredible run by the 2006 team. And we, of course, also acknowledge the teams that won the Carolina Blue Cup, uh, which can best be described as, let's, let's call it, the U.S. Open Cup versus the MLS Cup. If you're if you follow uh, American soccer, it's, it's an appropriate comparison. So, in the U.S. Open Cup equivalent, um, the 1991, 92, 98, 2009, and 2010 West Point Team Handball Club claimed the Carolina Blue Cup. So, just truly an incredible run by incredible guys, uh, and we of course want to acknowledge what the current team is doing. They just have claimed the third place title in the Carolina Blue Cup this year. Um, so congratulations to them for bringing home a bronze. They are ranked number one and awaiting the college nationals um, for this year. So we'll see if they can continue that streak. Again, it has been 14 consecutive national championships that West Point has won. We'll see if this is the year that JV can finally make a run. Even if not, I, I think if they stopped playing handball today, if that tragedy occurred in this great sport that we love and that has produced so many guys were to go away, it would be without a doubt that the greatest dynasty in the history of American team sports is West Point team handball. Also just want to give a shout out. The women's team has also absolutely fucking dominated They've won every national championship except for 2018 since 2012. Dare right. I ask, which was the 2018 champion? I need to know. What's the one school <coughs> since like 2010 other than Army that has ever won a handball championship? Well, this really pains me to say, but in every year that West Point Black won, they beat UNC. The year that they lost... It was Penn State in 2018. <laughs> 10 to 9. Damn. Oh, so, heartbreaker. A hugely defensive struggle. But Got also it. worth mentioning that the most recent women's championship was West Point Varsity versus West Point JV. Varsity won 16 to 15. <laughs> That's really close. So they're right there. And the JV took third place in... Uh, three of those years and took fourth place in uh, the other two. So they're right there. Um, we're, we're still waiting for that JV championship. But till then, uh, we, we're really thrilled to have this exhibit to honor the incredible domination of all the guys that make up the men's and women's 
Army West Point Team Handball Club. Another excellent addition by our staff. Uh, we'll keep these uh, exhibits rotating, but it's it's really exciting to have them in the spaces right now. And of course, there's one more space that we need to visit here. Xavier, I don't know if I've gotten actually a chance to see this since we did some of the mock-ups. Uh, so I'm really excited to see how this exhibit turned out. So I'm very excited about this wing. It's something that I'm very passionate about and that I think needed a little more acknowledgement. Any season in which soccer team or any team wins a trophy is a good season but there's some special seasons usually in european soccer or just non-american sports where a team has a chance to win more than one title and these seasons usually are known as double or treble or even quadruple seasons and they're the ones that really go down in history in modern European history, the two seasons that are considered to be the single greatest soccer seasons have been sextuple seasons, uh, one by Barcelona in 2009 and Bayern Munich in 2020. But there's one other team that has won a sextuple that often gets overlooked. I've definitely brought them up before, but never given them their, their, their full due. So today, I'm proud to unveil this new wing about the 2006-2007 Arsenal women's team. I absolutely loved that lighting effect that you have just come up on the shield. Now, did you have that timed to your voice, or does it is like motion activated? Uh, so it's kind of, it, it's like a fake clapper, where if I do the motion, then it does it without being annoyingly loud. Our staff is so good. We have such good curators and fabricators at this museum. I love museums so much. Anyway, I'm sorry, I digress. Let's see this beautiful exhibit. So it starts with a bit of important background to know about soccer in England, especially women's soccer. Women in England have been playing soccer for a long time, you know, pretty much since it was invented. Because, of course, why not? But then in 1921, the English FA banned women from playing soccer, stating that, quote, the game of football is quite unsuitable for females and ought not to be encouraged. And they enforced this ban by essentially saying that on any professional pitch, women were not allowed to even be on it. So it, that women had nowhere to play because the FA control all of the pitches. Obviously, this is extremely sexist, but also was very vindictive because at the time, the women's game was actually really popular and was making money. It was a women's sport in the 1910s and early 1920s that was making money and getting significant uh, you know, attendance at games. But because it was the women's game and the FA didn't control the women's game, they weren't making any money. So, Between this and the streaming rights I learned about earlier, I'm starting to realize that I think one of the reasons that Britain is such a deeply troubled isle, we'll say, is man even their capitalists are like not good at what they do like they're very bad at making money here instead of trying to find a way to bring it under their umbrella so they can make more money they said now nobody can have money this ban lasted 50 years and completely craters women's interest in soccer because if you can't legally play it anywhere at even a semi-pro level why would you do so so, women's interest in soccer is, is crushed. As the men's game continues to expand, finally, in about the 80s, teams like, eh, may, maybe we could do some women's stuff, but for the most part, still, still no one. And then in 1987, 
Arsenal became one of the first top-level teams to create a women's side. As one of the first real investors in the women's game, and I use investor loosely because they're not putting a lot of money into this. It's just more than zero, which is what everyone else is doing. Arsenal wins most years uh, of this still amateur, nascent uh, women's professional league. By 2002, they finally go to semi-professional status. Even then, they're not really paid much at all. Some reports were that they didn't get a salary, but instead a small bonus of £100 per player per win. And by 2006, the way that some of the players were paid was just by getting them different jobs at Arsenal and then covering their match expenses. So there were players who were part of academy training staff, even one woman who was part of the laundry team. It's so incredible to me that we were able to get these well-preserved payroll records from Arsenal here, uh, which you can see on display, showing all of these different counting trickeries that they played. You know what? The the one thing I will give Arsenal is that they're a, a team and a club that is very focused on the history and have recorded a lot of very good information to make sure that this stuff is passed on to future generations. And I did have to pull a few strings to get this sent over from England, but... This is a rotating exhibit. They're fine knowing that they'll get it back at some point. But for now, we get to show off all of this great information. Regardless, by 2006, Arsenal are a dominant force led by you know young 21-year-old England defender Alex Scott, 18-year-old forward Leanne Sanderson, uh, and veteran 27-year-old stand-in captain and Welsh midfielder Jane Ludlow. Their main captain at the time was uh, Faye White, that this was later in her career, and she was injured a lot, so she didn't play, but was still the you know the face of the team to the public. At the start of the 06-07 season, they're set to compete in six different competitions. Four main ones, the Women's Premier League, the UEFA Women's Cup, which is the precursor to the Champions League, the FA Women's Cup, and then the FA Women's League Cup. I don't know why they don't do FA... Cup, or I don't, I don't know why they have women before league and not league women's cup, but it is what it is. You know, kind of matching the four main trophies on the men's side as well, plus the smaller women's community shield and the London women's cup. So they start off the season easy win, cruising past Everton in the community shields. That's their first trophy, minor trophy, but still a trophy nonetheless, and one of the ones that gets counted on these types of seasons. A couple months later. Pick up a second trophy with a 2 nothing win over Millwall in the London Women's Cup. During this time, they're cruising both domestically and on the European circuit. Winning regularly 5-6 nothing. People really can't hold a candle to them. March 2007, they get their first major title of the year when Jane Ludlow scores a very late stoppage time goal against Leeds to win the Women's League Cup 1-0. And pretty soon after this, they officially clinched the Women's Premier League title. There's still about a month or so left in the season. They played 22 league games that year, and they win all 22, scoring 119 goals and conceding only 10. So, this is still the only thing that would be like a struggle for me to fully go all in a Premier League is the idea that you can play out a decent amount of the season with the ultimate champion known. I mean, to like now, now it's like the um, the the. Parity is much greater now than it was previously, but so you're much less likely to see that. 
But at this point, Arsenal were were dominant. I mean, averaging five and a half goals and giving up less than half a goal a game. They finished 14 points clear of second place Everton. Third place Charlton was the only other team within 26 points of them, which is wild because it's only a 22-game season, so absolutely nuts. Leanne Sanderson scores 29 goals in these 22 games, despite, again, being 18 years old. And she finishes 10 goals clear of teammate Kelly Smith and Charlton's Eniola Aluko. Now, turning to Europe, it's important to note that despite Arsenal's domestic dominance since their, their founding, a British team had never won the UEFA Women's Cup. The first five years of the competition had been dominated by teams from Germany and Sweden, with Frankfurt winning twice and Umea from Sweden winning twice. And Umea is important because at this point, they are the only professional team in all of women's soccer in Europe. The only one that fully pays all of their players. And pays them as players. Yes, and pays, and pays them as players. And we, we will talk about Umea in, in a little bit. Arsenal enters the competition, the European competition, in the second qualifying round. It's drawn in a group with Brondby of Denmark, who they had finished second in the group two last year. Brondby was also a very big team at this point. Uh, Rusyanka of Russia and Femina of Hungary. Befitting the, you know, not great investment in women's soccer uh, at this point. All group stage games were played over the course of a single week in Russia at Rossiyanka Stadium just north of Moscow. Which I have to imagine is not the most hospitable place to be playing. Yeah, it's not that hospitable, and also you're playing three games in a week, which is not great. But you know, they win all three games, scoring 12 goals, including a 5-4 thriller over the host Rossiyanka, where Scottish forward Julie Fleeting scored all five goals. And as a fun fact, due to the semi-pro nature of Arsenal at this time, and of most of the women's game, Fleeting lived and trained and worked in Scotland and only commuted to London for matches because she had to have a full-time job outside of soccer and could not afford to live in London. So she's just working in Scotland and then for games going down to, to, to London to play and then having to fly out to Russia for a week then scores five goals in a single game. Just like figure out vacation time with an employer to go represent her country, essentially. Yeah, pretty much. But moving on to the quarterfinals, they get a matchup against uh, Breda Balik of Iceland. Crush them, winning 5 nothing in Iceland and then 4-1 in England for a 9-1 aggregate win. So then they get Brondby again in the semifinals. And the first leg is in Denmark. It is marred by Kelly Smith has been getting the shit kicked out of her the entire game. And in like the 77th minute, she gets kicked really hard again. So she just gets up and shoves and knocks someone over and gets sent off for retaliation. While the Brondby fans are jeering her off the pitch, she gives them the backwards V sign, which in England and a lot of Europe is a major sign of disrespect, essentially like giving them the finger, just the backwards peace sign. So then she gets an extra one-match ban, and then she kicked a chair as she left the stadium getting a further match ban, meaning she was out for the entire rest of the competition. I just picture the referee as the principal from Breakfast Club, just adding another ban every time she says a word. 
I do just want to point out, if you look very closely here, you can actually see the indent. We have the chair that she kicked, and we have the <laughs> indent. The laces, even. It's, it's, it's incredibly well-maintained. Despite, you know, missing one of their top scores, they do win the return leg in London 3-0 to advance to their first European final against Umea. Again, it's a little hard to picture now because they're not currently a big name, but this was the only fully professional side in, in Europe. Their star player was then 21-year-old Marta. Wow. Who was in the middle of winning five players of, of the year in a row and who scored 111 goals in 103 games. She was the best in the world and unstoppable. And her strike partner was Hannah Youngberg, who had just led Sweden to the Women's World Cup final. This team was insanely dangerous, just blitzkrieging everybody. No one really gave the Arsenal women a shot because it was a two-legged game. Normally, if there's a match where a major underdog is up against a big team, you're like, oh, if it's a one-off, there's a chance. But if it's over two legs, you usually assume that the best team will win out. The first game is in northern Sweden, and it's windy as all hell. Like, the wind is just blowing the ball around, and no one's able to really get a good hold on anything. And it's just terse, back-and-forth affair, no one able to score until stoppage time. From 30 yards out, Jill Scott just decides to take a shot, and whether it's the swirling winds or just the way she hit it, it just curled right in the air, right into the top corner for a one nothing win on essentially what was about the last kick of the game. But, you know, there's still a game left, and Yumea has Marta, who... You're not going to hold off the score sheet for more than one game. Again, it's a back-and-forth match one week later. Uh, at one point, Yumea's Madeline Edlund took a shot that rebounded off the post, hit the face of Arsenal's keeper Emma Byrne, hit the post again, and then went out for a corner kick. So essentially, she dove for it, missed, post, face, post, out. Yumea makes a bunch of attacking subs, bringing on everybody, just... Five, six attackers led by Marta, and they just can't get past Byrne in the Arsenal defense. And the game ends 0-0, giving Arsenal their first and only UEFA Women's Cup title. And as of today, they are still the only British team to ever win the UEFA Women's Cup or the successor Champions League. This is now their fifth title of the season. One week later, they have to regroup compete in the FA Women's Cup final against Charlton in front of 24,000 fans, which is double the previous attendance record at the city ground in Nottingham. Perhaps, you know, a little bit hungover from previous celebrations, Charlton scores within two minutes for a dream start. But Arsenal quickly gets in gear, and 10 minutes later, they're up 2-1. Thanks, <laughs> thanks to goals from Kelly Smith and Jane Ludlow. And then the pair score again on the other side of halftime. Arsenal wins 4-1 for a fourth major title of the season, six titles of the year. Man, that's really nice to, to finish on an absolute just ass-kicking on home turf, basically. I mean, at least on home land uh, <laughs> in front of your fans after like this nail-biter finish elsewhere. What a finish for the sextuple, my goodness. And, you know, I... I do want to give a quick aside about 
This is unfortunately another instance of women's sports being disrespected, but the Charlton women had a great season that year. They finished third, and they finished runners-up in the FA Women's Cup Final to a juggernaut. But their men's team got relegated from the Premier League that season. So their board immediately announced that they were disbanding the women's team to save money. And people questioned this because they didn't really pay much money for the women's team anyway, and it was revealed that it would only save them about £250,000 to do so. A very paltry sum given that they just sold their star player Darren Bent to Tottenham for $16.5 million. So people are like, what the hell are you doing about this? And the women's team had to... All the players left because they were out of a job, but fans wanted to keep the team going and tried to secure independent funding for the team, and were able to do so. With zero support from the actual Charlton board and owners, they fielded a Charlton women's team the next year. But because they had lost all of their players already, they did then get relegated immediately that next season. Thankfully, now, in 2023, Charlton does have a full women's side again. But it's, you know, just the biggest F you to have a great season and then immediately have the board say, we're disbanding you because the men's side had a terrible season. Terrible. And that's why women's soccer needs exhibits like this so people can see just how fantastic it is. Well, we're projecting really great attendance numbers for this. And that's good because, again, as we said, these are stories that, even if they do not fit neatly under the mantle of one particular guy that stands out amongst them, they are all crucial stories with that big guy energy. Tremendous exhibits. We're, we're, We're so thrilled to welcome in these incredible teams filled with guys. And we hope that you guys will soon be filling this hall with your attendance. Um, again, we, we outlined some of the super highly advanced techniques that we've been deploying here. That stuff ain't cheap, folks. So uh, if you want to come on down, visit the Hall of Guy. We, we too, could use some crowdsourced funding, uh, much like Charles. <laughs> support for us is just as morally good as support for the Carlton women's team. But we do thank you for supporting us with your ears. After all of this, it's time for us to give the curatorial staff a break. They've been hard at work. And so we, next week, will be resuming our regular programming and kicking off season six, talking about some more guys for induction. It is going to during season six. Uh, it'll involve some travel on our personal end. So every once in a while, some things will get a little while, but we will coordinate with some more phenomenal guests. Uh, it has been such a joy these last couple of weeks to bring some new friends onto this and to have you all join us for that. So thank you all. I do want to say a thank you also real quick to my wife, Jesse, who is the person that turned me on to that story initially about the Wyoming state penitentiary all-stars, but I wanted to hide that. Thank you here at the end. So she listens to the whole episode. <laughs> and as always, thank you so much to our musical director, Don Ham for our excellent theme music. Thank you, Ryan Nanny, for tweeting about this podcast and being on this podcast. We are forever indebted. And once again, I, the, the, the space-time luxury that you came up with, James, to be able to incorporate me for, for Ryan's episode. Folks, that stuff ain't cheap. Come on down, visit the Hall of Guy. I'm, I'm just happy to have you back here on Terra Firma, Diaz, where, where you have been such a joy to welcome back on the show. And during that time, I have been James. I've been the very special guest, Xavier. And I'm Diaz. And as the farmer said to the pig and babe, that'll do, guy. That'll do. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
Before I bought my nice car, I was a very messy car guy. But then I bought a nice car, so I take care of that shit. <laughs> okay, that makes that makes sense. Used car that I spent two thousand on, yeah, fucking seven different McDonald's. Bags. I, re I remember that one. Yeah, it was it was yeah like oh don't worry no that those McNuggets are from yesterday. They're probably <laughs> have one. Right they have not become an ecosystem yet. They're just trash. The thing is though, like a McDonald's McNugget, like. Bet you is still edible like a month later. No, hell no. Hell I would no. argue with the descriptor me? edible, not like actively overtaken by mold and the elements, sure. But edible is a, is a stretch there, I think. They preserve the shit out of this. I'm telling you. I feel like you would get a minimal tummy ache, but not significantly more than you normally get from McDonald's.